welcome to the 80s Arcade Podcast. Here's your host, Bob Johnson. And now here is part two of my interview with George Gomez on the 80s Arcade Podcast. Uh, next, probably one of the least of video games you're most uh, well-known for, Spy Hunter. What can you tell us about that? Yeah. So, uh, Spy Hunter began life because the company, as a perk, they sent me to the JAMA show, which was the big uh, Japanese arcade game show in Tokyo. This was after we did Tron, mm -hmm. right? So, we did... We did Tron, and it was a big perk. They would send um, a group of engineers out to that show, and uh, it was a um, you know it was a cool it was a cool trip because you know the business was riding high, and you know we they flew us first class on a you know United I think it was United seven forty seven you know and it was it was like uh, in that that little forward section you know where there used to be like a, a like a lounge at the top. <laughs> And uh, it was a different time, <laughs> to tell you the truth. But, yeah, we stayed at the New Otani Hotel, which with the, at the time was a brand new hotel in Tokyo. And it had 50, there were 50 restaurants inside the hotel. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, there was like, you know, koi ponds on the grounds. And it was a pretty, pretty slick. So company sends me to the show. And it's that time when, you know, walk the Walkman is being invented. And in shopping in Tokyo, I buy a Walkman and I buy a, a, a Japanese cassette of James Bond's greatest hits. And uh, so on the way home in the plane, I'm listening to my cassette. And, and prior to the trip, uh, Bill Adams had, and I had been talking about, do you remember, uh, do you remember a a movie called blue thunder about a helicopter with a lot of weapons. It seems vaguely familiar. Like I probably saw it, you know, but <laughs> so, uh, Roy Scheider, I think was the lead actor. Um, and it was, it was set in LA. It was a police helicopter with all of this advanced weaponry. And, uh, <clears throat> and so, Bill and I liked the movie a lot. Bill and Atish and I would go to lunch together all the time. The three guys, you know, the three guys that, that I referenced earlier. And, and we'd go to lunch and we'd talk about, you know, what, what games should we make? And, and all this, you know, we'd talk about games and stuff. And, and, uh, and, and the, you know, we, we had talked about, you know, should we, we should do, we should do a helicopter with a lot of weapons, just like Blue Thunder, you know, we should do this. And, and and every once in a while, but we were all James Bond fans. We talk about James Bond. And we go, no, no, what about James Bond? And and so I'm I'm on the I'm on the plane back from Tokyo with this cassette, and I'm thinking, you know, maybe it should really be a car, and a uh, car, a lot of weapons, and and the notion of like you know those scenes in the James Bond movies when the big fight's about to happen, and it's kind of like the Zen of the music, you know, of being in the moment of the music, the music comes up, right. Um, you know, and, and James Bond has to do his mm. thing. Right. And it's, and it's, it, you know, and the, the odds are always overwhelming and there's like the enemies have all kinds of stuff, but he's going to prevail right with what he's got. And, and so it was, it was sort of that, 
like how do we reproduce the notion of this music uh, playing a role and making you feel like a hero in the car? And and so you know we came back and and it built. Bill, you know, shortly after, I think Bill left the company and the and um, he had, you know, he had sort of assigned, you know, the project was, you know, was kind of in flux. It was it wasn't an official project. And and uh, and Tom Leone and I had, had worked really closely on the tank rack and t- the tank wave in Tron. And and Tom was Cuban also, by the way, and he had come over similar in similar very similar fashion to my experience. And so we were both sort of James Bond fans, both sort of, you know, children of the cold war, so to speak. And, and we were into this whole thing and, and, and we would, we would, Tom's mom used to cook, she used to make Cuban food and we would stop at, at, at his mom's on the way home and eat Cuban food every once in a while. And, and, you know, we, we started talking about the game even though the game wasn't like a sanctioned official project in the company. And we started messing around with it. I, I had a roll of like an 18 inch, uh, you know, long, wide roll of drawing paper. And I had taken and drawn the road and, and tried to draw little interactions on the road. And, and the road was enormous. It, like the, the, I just kept on rolling the paper and drawing stuff <laughs> on the paper. And and uh, at one point, Tom had this in his in his uh, cubicle, and it, it it literally went around the walls of his cubicle. <laughs> and and he had he had put notes on like different things on there. Um, so we started working on this game, but it was it was it was half-assed because we were both working on other projects and the game wasn't an officially sanctioned project. And, and the, the business had begun to decline. So it was like, it must've been like 83 in that time frame. We, we, we'd been working on it for a little while and, and the business had started, had started taking a nosedive and the management crew for the company would do these sort of, kind of uh, these visits of the product development area, like to look at product, to look at everything that was being developed, every game that was being developed. And they would look and they would try to schedule things based on this. And they, they'd try to balance it with what they were licensing. And at Midway at the time, the licenses, because they had had so much more success with the licenses, they had had so much more success with things like, um, you know, Pac-Man and Miss Pac-Man and 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 all of the Taito games and and Galaga and I mean I mean just you know Galaxian and I mean you just name it and it and it's like all their big successes at the time were were Namco Taito uh, games and so all the stuff being done inside was like like kind of filler you know it was just sort of filler where they yes they let us do it and they, they were half-assed about the stuff we were doing and and one day things were getting really bad. There were no more, you know, there were, there were the, the, the Japanese uh, licenses were getting slimmer, uh, harder to acquire. Those companies had begun paying attention to what was happening in the States. And they were going, you know what, if we built, uh, you know, if we did a Namco USA, maybe we could build that stuff and we don't need those guys. And they started thinking along those lines. And, and, and I think that, um, you know, the company, 
while those relationships existed, the company was really searching for product and nothing seemed to be working. Everything seemed to be um, in bad shape. And and, uh, it was one of these tours of the, of the, of the the product development area. My, my, my boss who sort of knew that Tom and I were messing around with this thing had said, Hey, why don't you guys show that driving game that you got? And, and, and we had a cabinet at the time, the cabinet I had actually was enclosed and, um, and it had a, like a, it had like a, a curved smoked plexiglass, uh, back on it. And, uh, which, um, which was, um, it may, it was cool when you were inside the cabinet, but it wasn't so cool because you couldn't see the game from the outside of the cabinet very well. Uh, which is why we ended up with the cabinet that we ended up with. But um, uh, so they came by this big exec team of executives to see the games and, uh, and we showed them what we had on Spy Hunter. And at the time it wasn't much, it was like, it was pretty crude. And they were like, Oh, this is great. When can we, when can we put this into production? <laughs> we're like, we're not, we're like, we're, are you kidding? <laughs> it's like, it's barely working. <laughs> And I had done, you know, I had done, um, I had mocked up the, 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 the steering wheel with all the, you know, all the controls. I had the lights to select your weapons, all that stuff. Um, one of the things that Tom and I fought about was the truck. So um, the very first versions of the game, the weapons just appeared um, on the car. And and this really bothered me. It, it I, I didn't, I was like, wait, how does the car, how does it grow machine guns? <laughs> you know, like, how does it, where, where, where did it get its bullets? It ran out of bullets. And now you're telling me it's got bullets again. They like magically appeared. <laughs> and so now I, I know that, that I, I'm, I'm, I'm crazy because in video games, this happens all the time, but I just like, I, th- I just couldn't wrap my head around it. So, so, uh, you know, Knight Rider had a truck. I Remember do. Knight Rider? All right, Knight Rider had a truck, and and we're like, and and so I said to Tom, I said, why don't we do a truck? And, you know, and like when when you need stuff, you call up the truck and you get the truck in there. And and, and he hated it. He was like, what? No, I don't, I don't. We don't need a truck. What do we need a truck? And I got, I got to line up the car with a truck, and I got to call the truck. And and when is the truck? How do I get the truck? And all this, and we went back and forth and back and forth. Um, as it turns out unbeknownst to either of us at the time, or even while we were, the truck turned out to be a big strategy thing. We didn't design it that way. It was just, it became that from, from tweaking it. Um, at some point in time when the push to develop the game came about, um, Brian got thrown on the project, Brian Colin, and, and Brian started taking the, the enemy, enemy vehicles in, in a certain direction, trying to give them personality so, you know, him and Tom started coming up with these crazy names for the enemy vehicles. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, they ended up being sort of like, you know, Tom, Tom would just say, you know, like, now I want this guy to be the slasher, the slasher, you know, I mean, it's like, I knew he had the, I said, yeah, let's do the tire cutters in reverse and, you know, like put tire cutters on the bad guys <laughs> and instead of, you know, on the good guys, uh, vehicle. So, so, I mean, you know, it's like, it's game development, right? It's like, I think towards the end, a lot of stuff like the games, when, when you have momentum, the, the things you're doing 
that it builds on itself and and you can't you can't make that happen by sitting at your desk and thinking about it you have to try stuff you have to iterate you have to kind of like do things to make things happen and so if you're doing those things you will make things happen and and that in the end crunch the fact that they pushed us to kind of you know they wanted to produce the game we were um kind of you know we we didn't think we were ready we're trying all this shit trying all these things um and and i think that you know i think that um um you know uh, brian played a big role in tuning with that game with with uh tom um, um you know right to the end i think that uh you know we it it all you know it all came together because we were under this pressure to generate this thing, you know? And so, um, um, you know, I mean that, that, and that's really, you know, that, and, and that, that experience, uh, is not dissimilar from many games that I've worked on since then, or even before then, even, you know, even games like Tron, it's like the, the, the good, the, the great stuff comes from doing it, doesn't come from thinking, you know, you're never, you're not, you know, it's, you got, you have to get your hands dirty. You got to start building some stuff, hooking it up, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't work, changing it. Um, you can't be a, you can't fall in love with anything. You have to change everything. You have to be prepared to just ball it up, throw it out, do it again, try something else. And and that's where the good stuff comes from. You know, it, it's like, um, my gut told me I wanted the truck. I wanted the weapons to make sense. I didn't know why. And it turned out that, hey, you know what? This became a big part of the strategy of managing the truck, managing your time in the game. Um, you know, we had, we kept um, inventing different, you know, different uh, uh, transformations. You know, we had a, we had an air transformation that we wanted to do and we never managed to do. Um, we had, I mean, if you look at, if you, I think if you dump the Rams out on that game, you, you find the, you can find vehicles that didn't make it, um, into the real game. Um, so, so yeah, and it, even the hardware, a guy named Kerry Mendick, Kerry Mendick, um, is a guy, is the guy that, you know, we took, we said, we said, Kerry, we need, we need, we didn't have a scrolling hardware, which is sounds ridiculous, but we didn't have one. Everybody else had one. You know, the, the, the guys at Williams had the Defender stuff. Uh, you know, the, there were games like Super Cobra and, and, and lots of scrollers and side scrollers. And we, we didn't have anything. So he took an MCR2 and modified it to get it to scroll. And, and you know, that, that was like, you know, it's kind of like you can't build a driving game if the thing doesn't scroll. Exactly. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, uh, it, yeah, it's, uh, it was, it was a trip. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I'd like to thank, first of all, that you donated the, your concept art for Tron to the Strong Museum. And, you know, I really, um, think that I speak for all gamers when I say that, um, it's, very generous of people who work in the industry to donate stuff like that so that we can even get a little bit of the behind the scenes 
look. Um, and uh, kind of in that same vein, I, I've read that you possibly still might have the original wood carvings that you used for the original Spy Hunter handles. Yeah, I have, I have a lot of stuff like that, which is going to end up at the museum. Um, and and so, yeah, I have – so I have a house full of um, a lot of things, that the physical things from the time and – and I, uh, I have, I also have like, you know, just drawings and 35 millimeter slides of, you know, photographs of all kinds of behind the scenes development stuff and, and all that stuff's going to the strong. I, um, on the, my, the only thing that, the only reason it's not already there is because, or some of that stuff's not already there is because, um, I want to document it for myself. I want, you know, I want to, I, I want you know, it's like, I don't mind giving it away, but I want a record of all this stuff. And so it's, and, and I just, my, my day is, you know, my life is kind of crazy, uh, in terms of my, you know, my job here is a big job and I, and I, I'm busy all the time and I never have time to, you know, work on that 69 Mach 1 or document the stuff for that matter. And so I've started, I've started, I just need to make better progress. And then eventually all that stuff will end up at the Strong Museum. Is there maybe any one item that you, you know, think that people that maybe, you know, hasn't been donated yet that would either be surprised or be like, wow, you know, this is such a, a unique piece or an awesome piece. Is there anything like that you can think of? Um, you know, I, I, there's a lot of stuff. There's a, um, there's, <laughs> there's a thing that'll, that it, it seems so, it seems so nothing now and in the, in the world that we live in. But so I had, I took a, um, at the time, you remember we made these games, we referred to them as cabarets. Mm -hmm. It was like a 13 inch CRT. And I had this crazy idea that, you know, the game systems at the time, right. Have you ever played Pac-Man on a, on a, on a on Atari 2600, oh, yes. <laughs> it's it's almost yes. unplayable, right? It's almost unplayable. It's so bad, and and so if you if you if you wrap your head around the time and you say, how do I get the highest? How do I get the arcade quality Pac-Man experience in something that's not enormous that I can you know put on a tabletop in my house? Or, or, and, and, you know, how do I get like a full on real Pac-Man experience with all of the, the beautiful color of the CRT, you know, that, that sort of that arcade phosphor glow. Right. And, and so I went and I requisitioned all the hardware for a 13 inch cabaret game. And I designed a cabinet uh, that sits on a tabletop has a has full on Pac-Man controls, a real pack real Pac-Man hardware and 13 inch CRT. And and it's probably gonna go to the Strong Museum. It's the one it's the one and only of its kind in the world ever. And 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 I showed it to the sales guys, sales and marketing guys, and I said, look, we can look, people will buy this because it's not the size of a full on arcade. And and you know it'll be more affordable and you know everybody wants it and and they were like, yeah, you know what? Um, we're, we're not in that business. And, and, and so when I left the company, I literally asked them, I said, do you guys mind if I take this? And they were like, 
no, you can have it. And so I have it. It's in my living room. <laughs> it works. I had a problem with the um, I had a problem with the with the transformer being close to the yoke of the monitor, and so uh, the there's an there's a electromagnetic interference in that in that every once in a while the screen seems to seems to have a wave in it, you know. <laughs> uh, but but other than that, it's it's like awesome, and uh, yeah, and that'll end up at the at the Strong Museum. That will be a very unique piece and something I would definitely look forward to seeing. So after you worked at Midway, um, you went ahead and went and worked at Marvin Glass and Associates. What what can you tell me about that? It sounds like it was a very interesting time in your career. Yeah, those guys. Um, okay, so for those of you who don't know, Marvin Glass and Associates is probably the premier toy invention firm in the history of the world. Um, those guys invented, you know, you name it, Lightbright, Operation Mousetrap, Simon, uh, and on and on and on and on. It, they were strictly an invention house. So we would invent and then um, prototype working prototypes of every toy concept. And then we would pitch them to all the major toy companies. So Mattel, Hasbro, Kenner, Milton Bradley, everybody uh, would, would make a pilgrimage to the studio here in Chicago and to see product. And then they would license the product from the company. So the company had a royalty stream. When I, so I worked there in the 80s and they used to tell us that, you know, we could all fail. There were 30 designers, 30 model makers. We had we had beautiful shops and, and it was a really cool building, special custom made building um, for us at the corner of Chicago and LaSalle in, 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 in downtown Chicago. And um, and so they, they used to tell us that all of us could fail and that the company would still be in the black because they had such a stream of royalties coming in from all the amazing things that they had invented and licensed, license, you know, rock'em, sock'em robots. I mean, they, they still had royalties from that stuff coming in. So all this, all these old amazing toys that you grew up with. So, um, what, you know, Marvin Glass, as you know, uh, also dabbled in video games, in arcade games, right? right? They did you know, Domino Man and Journey and Tapper. Those were Marvin Glass games. They were they were done in Marvin Glass because those guys were very forward looking. And when they saw that uh, video games were going to be a thing, they they decided they were going to jump in. And they contacted Bally Midway, and 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 uh, they were always pitching ideas. And and the company basically said to them, you know what? These ideas are great. They're on paper. They're just you know, but we just can't. You know, we can't make something on the strength of. A drawing, you know, you have to kind of like, you know, you really have to do the development work because there's so much involved in really making a game fun and making a game work. And so they uh, they hired um, a small development team inside of Marvin Glass. And and how I got to know the company, which which turned out to be um, how I knew them to ask them for a job was that they were working on MCR hardware and the company would send me down into the city to work with their guys to teach them how to use our art tools and just help them figure stuff out when they when they needed. And so I had a re- I'd established a relationship with them uh, with a partner 
um, one of the inventors of Simon, uh, a guy named Howard Morrison. And and Howard, um, you know, had when they were doing the, the video games, we would work with them to, you know, however it is that, the, the, you know, whatever they needed, we went supported them. And so. So when in 84, when the business was tanking and I was I thought, man, this video game thing is over. It's just gone. It's like it, it you know, there's not going to be any more video games. And I thought. I thought I was going to get laid off. And so I decided I better, I better get a job before I get laid off. And so I started, I started looking around and uh, I don't know what came to me one day as I, I was always into toys and I thought, Hey, it'd be fun to design toys. So I picked up the phone. I mean, I, I can, I can, I'll tell you that I can picture the moment I was, it was, you know, six, seven o'clock at night, somewhere in there. I was in my office at, at Midway, uh, in the corner. And, and I, and I called, I called Howard Morrison out of the blue and he picked up the phone and I said, Howard, things aren't going so good over here, you know? And, and he knew because they had basically said, we're out of, we're out of video games. Uh, and they had abandoned it uh, maybe a year before, cause it wasn't, it wasn't a money-making prospect for them anymore. And they'd said, you know, we're out. So they had gotten out. So I called him up and I said, Howard, I, you know, I, I don't want, I, I need, I think I'm going to need a job and I think I want to be a toy inventor. And he said, well, you know, things have changed over here and, 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 um, there's a new managing partner. He's very old school, Marvin Glass guy. He came up, he's the guy that invented Rock'em Sock'em Robots and he's the new managing partner and you're going to have to interview with him. And if you make it past him, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. And so, uh, so he said, he made an appointment for me. He said, I'll call him tomorrow. I'll make an appointment for you. Come in. And so I put together a portfolio of my work and I went down and I interviewed with this guy. His name was Harry Disco and uh, Harry interviewed me and uh, and, you know, he said, OK, he's, you know, uh, you, you know, uh, I'm going to give you a try. But, you know, if you don't if you don't work out, you know, you'll be looking for a job in three months. He was not the most you know, he was not the most encouraging guy. You know, he was like. He's like, yeah, you know, I think he says, you know, he told me, he says, I think you're overpaid and you got to take a cut and pay and all this. So it's like, okay, all right. So, but I wanted to go do it. And, and it, it turns out it was, it was a great, it was a great experience. It was another chapter. Uh, and, and it was a significant chapter. Those guys, you know, it, it was a place where, you know, I had, I I'd been at the sort of at the top of the food chain at I'd worked my way up to the top of the, the development food chain at, at Midway when I left. And, and when I, when I went to glass, I was, first of all, I was surrounded incredible by incredibly talented people, probably this, you know, one of the most talented, uh, you know, development groups I've ever uh, had the fortune to work in. And, and, it was like being thrown into a pool of sharks and you got to swim with the sharks. I mean, it was just, uh, it, it was, it was awesome. It was intimidating. It was pressure, big time pressure every day. It's a, it was a very cool environment. Like no one told you what to do. No one told you what to work on. You worked alone. Whatever you came up with that day is what you did. And, and it, it was the environment that if you were self-motivated, you could be very successful. If you needed someone to work with or you needed to, like, be told what to work on, you were going to fail miserably. And so 
Um, I went there every day and tried to invent stuff. And it was, you got to have like really tough skin because um, the, the toy companies are brutal when it comes to selecting the product they make. And even with the, Mar- the Marvin Glass reputation went a long way. Um, but, you know, they, they would, they were, the rejection rates were huge, you know. So we, for every, you know, for, for every hundred things you did, you might get them to look at three. And then of those three, you know, uh, one might fall out in testing, two might make it on the street. If you're lucky, one has success. You know, I mean, it was really tough, tough business. Uh, but it was a business, it was a speed business. I mean, because, you just had to you had to churn stuff. Everything had to be a working prototype. There's no arm waving, no drawings. Everything had to work just the way you said. And we what we sold was gimmicks. We sold the you know like we 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 only worried about styling something when the, the when the styling was significant to the gimmick. For the most part, we knew the toy companies were going to be taking the stuff and making it their own, putting it into the. Like they might blend something into the Barbie line or might blend something into G.I. Joe, whatever, Hot Wheels, whatever it was, you know. And so I did a lot of stuff. It was, um, you know what those guys taught me? Those guys taught me that uh, a little while ago I said, you you know, how you make things happen is you you get up and you try something. Even, even when you don't know where you're going, you need to, your hands need to be, you need to be engaged in making something. And that's what they taught me. They taught me that the key to being creative on demand every day is to is to is to physically work at it because that's the you're not you're not going to have the next amazing idea uh, staring at your computer screen or your CAD system or whatever. I mean, it's just not going to happen. That's not how the world works. And so um, they were uh, they made me. Uh, they made me a lot better. It was like, it was like, I consider it like my graduate school in design. They, they made me a lot better. Just uh, the, the pressure to generate stuff, generate stuff quickly and, and uh, abandon things. They made me bulletproof in terms of, you know, uh, when somebody, I, I don't fall in love with my ideas. I, I like some of them more than others, but the reality is that you have to be able to have people tell you that this sucks and it doesn't work. Or they don't like it. And you need to like move on and because there's it's not the last one you're going to have. You're going to come up with another one and you're going to come up with another one. And and so it was uh, a super high pressure environment, but also uh, incredibly insightful. Um, it, it colored the way I work forever um, forever since I've worked a certain way. Um, and it's it that was such a significant influence in in my career i can't tell you um so yeah it was an amazing place amazing people um partners got into a dispute about what the company was worth and whatever it broke up and um uh i uh um i went on you know i went on um i went on took those lessons and and have built the you know the rest of my career on the on the on that cornerstone so yeah um, can you tell me about, you know, some of the games that you uh, invented, you know, maybe some that got released and maybe even some that, uh, you know, stayed in the prototype stage only? From that era? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, so I did, a, I did a, like uh, these tabletop trucks that you, in an arena, you control one, I control one, you smash them into each other, the big 
monster trucks, four wheel drive, uh, you know, with big tires and the parts come off the trucks. And when you get, if I manage to get all the parts off of your truck by smashing into your truck, um, there's a switch inside that closes and I won because your truck is dead. <laughs> so uh, Crash and Bash, a company called Galoob in San Francisco made it. I, I have heard of that. I never, um, I never played it, but I definitely have heard of it. Yeah, there's. if you go to my Facebook page and you, you look inside the movies in my Facebook page somewhere, uh, there is the commercial, the, 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 the toy commercial for, for Crash and Bash is up there. Um, what else? Uh, Tonka made a thing called Splash Darts, which is a foam dart with an, an absorbent foam bo- uh, tip and a skinned foam body. And you dip it in water and the absorbent foam on the tip absorbs the water and wastes it weighs the dart perfectly. So you throw it flies through the air, like a dart. When it hits your buddy, it splashes. So it's like a reusable water <laughs> balloon. Uh, so it's an outdoor, you know, like, like, you know, kind of thing you just screw around with on a, you know, a poolside or on a picnic or right. at the beach or something. Um, yes, yeah, so I did that. Um, I did a bunch of other stuff. I did some, I did some weapon gimmicks for uh, Coleco had a line called Rambo, you know, along the, you know, around around the built around the Mm -hmm. Rambo character. And they created these action figures and the action figures, the, the, the marketing guys at the 11th hour uh, kind of freaked out that the, um, they didn't really have a gimmick. It was just another, you know, it was just a different scale. Uh, sort of GI Joe, you know, and they were like bigger than bigger than '80s GI Joe, but smaller than '60s GI Joe, and and uh, they 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 were a little freaked out that they, they didn't do anything. So they, they in a panic, they came to Marvin Glass and said, "Oh my God, we've got this thing. We don't know if we think we're going to lay an egg with it. You better, you guys better. Can you come up with some stuff?" And we're like, and they're like, "Okay, what can we do?" And I said, "Well, everything's molded already. So whatever you do." It's got to just like fit on the guy. And, and so we, uh, you know, we scrambled and came up with a whole bunch of stuff that was like sort of like spring powered little wind up motors and stuff that you, you put them on the guy. And, uh, you know, it's like, so it was, and, um, and that those, those became the gimmicks that saved the line. Uh, uh, we did a whole bunch of those different weapons, different things, different, uh, gimmicks, um, I did some work on the Voltron line, you know, remember, you, you know, Voltron, you know, yep. the lions that pick up the robot. Yeah. Yeah. I did some vehicles. I did some vehicles for the, I did bad guy vehicles for the Voltron. Those, line. those were my favorite. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm just like lots of stuff like that. I mean, I made some cool stuff that didn't ever see the light of day. I mean, I had this, I made this, uh, it was like a four foot shark. That was like uh, that was powered, like remote control powered, and it looked like, um, you know, did you ever see the Soriyama robots, the Chrome robots? You know, the robot girls. They look like you know, they looked like a sexy girl. Only it was like a Chrome robot. Uh, no, <laughs> from the eighties. You know, they were like very popular. They were they were art. It was oh. art. It was high. It was you know, it was, it was high art. You know, it was like on, it was like it would show up in yeah, heavy okay, metal okay, magazine. Okay, I was thinking like an actual it, toy. Okay, yep, yeah, I've seen stuff like that. Sure. Yeah. All right, so so I made this shark that was like it, imagine like the fiction was that it was the most efficient shape in the water, and so it was really a submarine, but it was a submarine that was shaped like a like a metallic shark with like you know with like 
the panels and, and surfaces and joints and like sort of, you know, and, and of course the jaws opened and, and, the, and the, the, you know, the eyes were like, like fighter pipe, you know, like, like fighter plane cockpits and the dudes were inside driving it. And you could open this thing, you know, the, the, the tail was articulated and you drive it around the floor uh, and, you know, like, like uh, hatches would open and had rockets inside and all this stuff. Right. <laughs> and so I made this big giant shark that did this and everybody in the studio loved it. It was like, so good. People were like, wow, that's so cool. And no toy company bought what? it. It was like, <laughs> Yeah, I'm, right. I'm thinking right now. I'm like, <laughs> I wish I. Yeah, still I'm had thinking now. Thing. I'm like, I wish I, I had wish one I, of those. <laughs> yeah, I wish I still wish I had that thing. Uh, yeah, made one. It was. It looked amazing, and uh, I wish I had. I have uh, like bad grainy like VHS tape, <laughs> like you know, you know, 240 lines of resolution. You get like I can't believe we used to watch that yeah, exactly. stuff, right? And I have uh, right. I have VHS tape of the shark somewhere in my archives it'll they'll end up at the strong museum oh, that, that'd be awesome <laughs> you know i i tell you now i think you could do something like that and maybe make it like bluetooth or some other things you know oh, nowadays nowadays that would definitely would rock maybe i'll maybe i'll maybe i'll uh i'll sit down on my cad system and design something and then uh, wrap it yeah. in front of it nah yeah <laughs> uh so <laughs> i i did see also it looks like you uh in addition to some of the unused ideas, you had a, an unused idea of like wearable jewelry for boys. Um, you know, yeah, 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 for sure. That that that's from that time. Yeah, it was like wearable warriors. Yeah, it was very cool. Uh, it was like all those things. They they look like um, big chunky, you know, like flat black uh, giant watches and stuff, right? And then you press buttons on them, and they all de- like deployed and launched rockets. And there were little dudes inside launched the dude. You know, it's like. Uh, yeah, wearable warriors. Nobody bought that. That the, those photographs here, um, I you know the, the saddest part about some of these prototypes is they were so well finished. They were like, they, and they all worked, and it was like amazing looking stuff. And they would go off to the toy company, and you know, like they would disappear. Like the toy company would come, the toy company would call back and say, yeah. Uh, I don't know what happened. It got lost in the mail. <laughs> it was like, like, like that, that particular stuff, that those things, all I have are the 35 millimeter shots. What you're looking at is I scanned the slides. I have some more. I found, I found the entire line. So one of these days when I got nothing to do, I'll, I'll digitize the slides and put it up there. But yeah. Uh, yeah, that's stuff. I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff. I mean, it was like when you're, you know what, you got to generate literally my, my first year there, I said, I, I was like, nothing I did had any remotely had success. And I, 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 I had a partner in a shared an office with another designer who was like, he was the opposite. He was having everything he touched was something. And I said to him one day, what the hell am I doing wrong? I mean, seriously, what the fuck? I mean, it's like, I don't understand what I'm doing wrong. And the guy said to me, he goes, uh, let me see how many open up your project book and see so your project book was this thing. You kept all these numbers for every project that you were working on. And, um, he said, how many numbers in your book? And, and I said, oh, I don't know. I had like, you know, I don't know, 24 or something. And he said, that's your problem. And I said, what do you mean? He says, he said, here, look at my book. So he gives me his book and he's got like, you know, 60 things in his book. And I'm like, dude, 60, and he says, yeah, you got to average one a week. You got to average one a week. He said, this one took you a day. 
That one's going to take you three days. That one might have taken you two weeks. But at the end of the year, if you're not throwing 52 things out there, you're not going to have success. You're not. You're just not. It's a numbers game. It's like and 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 so you know I I, I ratcheted up the number of you know ideas I was coming up with and mocking up and trying and stuff and then because he told me this it, it is a numbers game. It is like that business. Uh, today that business is different. I don't know what that business is like today. Today everything's a license, and I don't know how many gimmicks they put into things. And they're they've gotten their they're, they're getting their teeth kicked in every day by by video and iPads and and Xboxes and stuff. And and so and it's 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 sad. I I you know the demise of the American plastic toy business is just sort of like I hope those guys make a comeback. I have I'm a big fan. I want it. I want them to be successful. Um, and it, and they've had a tough go in the last 10, 15 years. Uh, but, um, you know, I, and I, I think that the age, you know, the age keeps compressing. Right. And it was like, it used to be like, I played with my, you know, I played with my toys. So I was like, I don't know, 12 or something. And, and, you know, 13, I was still playing with toys and, and, um, and now it's, it's kind of like, you know, I think kids, you know, they're, they're three years old and, and, and they're out of it and they're into, you know, they're into an iPad. I don't know. I mean, I, it's different. Um, so it's a tough, tough business nowadays. It was a tough business then, but it was a, it was a tough business because, you know, idea, new ideas, a toy company is going to put a lot of money into developing and, and marketing a new idea. And, uh, so, you know, when you got with Marvin Glass and Associates, you got a, a historic, cachet and 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 uh, just uh, the the you know the uh, added so many great ideas had come out of there that there was a certain element of security and knowing that you were going to the best independent toy inventor in the world and saying you know what do you guys got and and, and it really that was the business uh, just going back real quick you you know you mentioned how you had helped uh, Marvin Glass you know originally um, when they started developing some of their video games so you helped them with the tools and that kind of stuff did anything that made it into any of the games that we had mentioned any of that stuff belong to you as far as any help with the creation or were you there strictly just as an advisor to show them how to use the tools you know, I, 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 I think, I think their stuff is their stuff. I, I didn't, I don't think I, I don't think I played a significant role in any of the stuff they were doing. I think that they, um, you know, some really smart guys, uh, um, Richard Ditton, Richard and Elaine Ditton, the owners and founders of Incredible Technologies, you know, the, you know, Golden mm-hmm. Tee Golf. They were some of those developers that worked on some of those games uh, Scott Morrison still still uh, at Incredible Technologies. Uh, I mean, um, you know, uh, um, you know, I think that that um, you know those guys. That I mean, that those, those products were theirs. You know, um, I think that uh, uh, you know they were they were talents in their own right, and they they did you know they did. Uh, you know, Steve Meyer, Steve Meyer and uh, went on to uh, Microprose and a lot of those products. And I think that 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 uh, Steve and uh, and Scott did uh, a lot of the journey stuff. And, um, you know, I mean, yeah, they I mean, they had their own. Yeah, I don't I don't take credit for any of that stuff. A, a little later than on in your career, you uh, 
you were working at a company called Grand Products, and you worked on a, a very interesting game, which I had an opportunity to play only once, uh, called Slick Shot, uh, which for anybody who doesn't know yep. it, where you actually have a real uh, pool cue, shortened one, and a cue ball, and you would shoot it into into the cabinet, and then, of course, it would you know work on the video screen. What can you tell me of your involvement on that? Right. <clears throat> so... Um, so that was a product that where the guy, th- this guy was, um, uh, there was, a, there was, he was an engineer and he had invented, um, I think it was, I think he had originally invented it as a golf trainer. And what it was is, is it was an, an array of infrared sent, you know, infrared, uh, uh, sensors that looked across a, uh, a, a space, you know, a certain space in the, in, in the, in the game. So to describe the game to people who haven't seen it, there was a CRT 25 inch, I think 25 inch CRT at an angle in an up, you know, in an upright video game cabinet. And imagine what would be the control panel area in a video game was a small felt surface. Like it was like, like pool table felt with bumpers. And you took, you took literally took the cue ball and you you hit it with the stick with a real cue stick that was attached to the you know that was like loosely tethered to the game, and the the ball would cross the sensor array that was located underneath the CRT, and it would continue the shot up into the video game screen, and the ball would go through a trough system that returned it to the front of the cabinet. So the array, the the infrared sensor array, could sense. Uh, velocity and direction. So you could sense, it could tell what angle the ball was traveling at and it could tell what speed it was traveling at. And it would try to replicate this in the video monitor. And originally he did it in order as a, as a, as a golf trainer, like for putting or something. And he brought this thing in and, um, we said, you know, well, I think we think that, you know, and, and he, he had, he may have even, he may have even suggested the, the the pool table I'm, I can't remember where that came from but um, so so I mean my role was strictly to, to develop it and um, what I did was I we couldn't we we kept trying to make it so that you could play pool but we couldn't really walk around the table you couldn't really walk around the table it was it was very odd so my big contribution was saying you know what screw the table let's just make it trick shots. And so, and we'll take advantage of the fact that we've got a video screen to do things like, you know, we'd have a, we'd have balls moving across the top of the screen. You had to time your shot to hit it, um, had all kinds of, all kinds of ball, like tricks that you can do. Cause you got to, you get, cause you have a video game and, and, uh, with, with the, you know, with the pool balls. Uh, and so, uh, so really it was like, you know, the day I, I said, let's turn in trick shots. That's the day that made that thing viable because the notion of walking, you know, around the table had, had frustrated us to no end and we couldn't, we just couldn't make it work. So yeah, very interesting game. Um, I have, I'll tell you a horror story about that game. We went to the trade show where we announced the game. We had developed the entire game in um, for fluorescent lighting and it worked great. We went to this trade show and we were in, we were in this, giant hall that had these enormous halogen lights and all the halogen lights 
threw out so much infrared light that um, none of the sensors worked. And here we are an hour before the trade show <laughs> trying to figure out what the hell is going on with the games. Oh, my God, that's a dead. I don't ever want to relive again. <laughs> you learn a lot, you know. So we, we invented how we solved the problem is we invented these collimators, which basically shaded the sensor from everything except the 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 sensor it was supposed to see. And we did all kinds of like, you know, we did some other electronic uh, wizardry with multiplexing it and stuff. But yeah, it was it was a nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, George, you know, about nine years ago or so you you started at Stern Pinball um, and you're now the executive vice president and chief creative officer. Can you take us kind of through how you went um, starting, say, from like the grand product stage on through now and then also maybe a little bit of what does your job today involve? Yeah, so it's a little bit of a story. So, yeah, so after Marvin Glass, I bounced around for a little while inventing different, trying to invent different things, doing, I did some toy development work for some friends of mine. I did, you know, I I was doing novelty games. I did a, uh, did you ever see a, a helicopter game called Hawk Avengers? The old, like the old uh, '80s, uh, like wor- or old '60s Whirly Bird kind of games. I, I can picture the one you're talking about, but I have seen games like that. You said from the '60s, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I did, I did that. You know, in that time frame when I was doing working on Slickshot, I was, I was working on, I was also working on localizing a lot of Japanese games. It was basically doing anything I could do to earn a living. Um, after the, after the glass days. And, and, uh, while I was doing that, um, I noticed pinball machines and I thought, you know, these are like, when I was in the toy business, uh, a toy was like, you know, I had like, I had to do everything for a very tight price, you know, like, like, you know, a toy on the shelf. If you see something on the shelf, it costs 1595, divide that by five. That's what it really costs. You know, that's what, that's what really costs to make it. So it's like, you know, you're talking about, Something that, you know, I'm, I'm working with a Mabuchi motor, an LED, a couple of batteries and a little bit of plastic to, to create a toy. And I looked at a pinball machine and I was like, wow, look at look at that. That's like a at the time it was like, that's like a four thousand dollar toy. And that looks really cool. I wonder if I could do that. And so so I started uh, coming up with like like gimmick feature concepts. Cause I didn't really understand too much. I didn't you know, I had I had been around the pinball guys when I worked at, at Midway. Uh, and, you know, I've been around the Bally pinball, pinball guys, but I didn't really I didn't really understand, you know, how I was going to make the transition to that. I thought that's a pretty close club. And I thought I thought, yeah, I, I remember those guys back in the day. You know, I wanted to design a, a spy. You know, they, they said that when we had success with Spy Hunter, Bally said we're going to make a Spy Hunter pinball. And I my boss told me and I was like. Oh, how cool is that? Can I help? And and he's oh sure, go down there and talk to those guys. And I went down there and talked to those guys. They they had they wanted no part of me. They wanted to do the spider. I was like, wait, I invented spider. Was like, yeah, whatever. You know, they wanted no part of me. They wouldn't let me do the game. So they did the game. I hate the game, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh uh, but anyway the um so the uh so I started you know I I thought yeah pinball design is kind of a close club but maybe I can sell a pinball company a gimmick so i started making gimmicks and selling them i had a little bit of luck with a company called premiere i was I, you know every time they wanted to do something it was 
they didn't quite know how to do, they would call me in, I would do the development work and, and then, you know, they'd pay me for it. And I was showing stuff to uh, Williams and they were the big kahuna at the time. You know, they were, um, they had acquired Bally and Midway, um, the, the brands and uh, consolidated those development groups. And, and so I was, you know, I was trying to, just trying to figure it out. And uh, one, t- one day I, I used to get an audience all the time with a very nice guy who ended up being a very, you know, a, a good friend to this day's good friend. And, and he was my boss at, at, for many years at, uh, at, at Valley Midway, uh, Williams, Williams Valley Midway. Uh, his name is Ken Fidesna and Kenny, uh, would come and look at my stuff and I would show him stuff. And, and one day he came and he said, you know, I, I don't, you know, I, it's tough for me to, to make a commitment to one of your ideas because I have, we have our own designers. They want to do their own stuff. He says, but would you consider coming and designing, you know, as an in-house designer for us? And I, and so, you know, it was that it was a time in my life when I needed an, I needed a change. I needed a transition. And, and I decided I would take the shot and I took the shot. And originally they hired me to do novelty games because I had, some of their designers had noticed games like Hawk Avenger and, and thought, you know, that, that, that this guy's got something. And so they, so they originally, and that lasted about, I don't know, six months, I was going to do novelty games. And then they, they had an emergency where Capcom had come to town and stolen a bunch of designers to go work on Capcom pinball. And, and they had a hole in their production schedule at, at Williams. And they said, you know, do you think you can do a pinball? And I was like, sure. And so I started, you know, I started down the path of designing this pinball machine and, and I started designing pinball machines and I designed pinball machines there, you know, from 1993 to like 1999. I did it. I did the last significant thing I did there was a game called Pinball 2000, which if you've ever seen it is a very cool interaction between video games and, and pinball where I got a patent on the, the virtual or the coincidence between uh, the coincidence between a virtual object and a real object. So using a combining mirror, I'm, I made the pinball machine look like there were video images standing on the surface of the pinball. And it's an old Disney trick. I didn't invent the combining mirror. I just applied it to the product. And then wherever I put an image, I had a sensor and when the ball would cross the sensor, I could transform the image, right? So I could blow it up. I could enlarge a Martian. I could do whatever I wanted with it. And, um, and that became Pinball 2000. Unfortunately, Pinball 2000, the company had its sights set on the game, on the gambling business and wanted to get the hell out. And they closed the pinball division shortly after the, after the second Pinball 2000 game was made and the second title. And, uh, so, found myself out of, uh, out of work at once again. And, uh, I was, I was by then, you know, um, uh, like I said, many years earlier, like in 19, 10 years earlier, roughly, uh, Williams had acquired Midway, the Midway, uh, brand and the Bally brand. And so the, you know, the video game division, you know, uh, Mark Trammell, Eugene Jarvis, Ed Boone, all those guys were, that was ongoing all the time. I was designing pinballs there. Those guys were designing video games, you know, all the video games that, you know, right. Mortal Kombat and NBA jam and NFL blitz, all this. So I was friends with all those guys. I knew everybody happened to be back at the company one day, shortly after I got laid off from Williams 
to do some HR stuff. And I, and I went across the street to Midway uh, to have lunch with somebody. And I bumped into Mark Trammell in the hall and Mark said to me, Hey, why don't you, um, you know, what are you doing? I said, nothing. He says, why don't you, why don't you come, come work on video games over here. And, uh, and that little hallway conversation became the, like the next nine years of my life. I worked on, um, the, the, the basketball franchise NBA ballers, uh, with Mark all those years. And, uh, from, you know, until, until midway closed in, in, um, in 2008. Um, and so, but it was during that time that, that, uh, Gary Stern called me and said, Hey, you know, you used to compete against us and would you mind designing pinball machines on the side for us? And I went, talked to Ken Fidesz and I said, listen, you mind if I do this? And he said, no, he says, we're, we're not in that business anymore. You can, you can do that. And so I started designing as a consultant to the company and I did a bunch of pinball games. During that time I did Batman, the dark Knight. I did the Sopranos. I did Lord of the Rings. I did uh, the Playboy game. So, um, and I was an outside designer to Stern and I was in it and I was still working at Midway. Um, and then, uh, uh, you know, in 08, Midway, Midway crashes and burns. I'm, I'm out of a job. Um, I've spent a couple of years with, um, incredible technologies. You know, my, remember the, I mentioned the golden tea folks, um, Richard and Elaine and, you know, they, I, I'd originally met them back in Marvin glass days. And, uh, so they gave me a job and I was working there. And during that time in 08, as, as if you don't know, a lot of companies struggled to survive the, the, um, uh, the economic uh, crisis and Stern Pinball is one of those companies that struggled. And right around 2010, I started getting calls from Gary saying, Hey, you know, I think we're, I think we're on our way back up and I, th you know, we might need your help again. And so in, in 2011, they asked me to come and run product development and since 2011, that's what I've been doing. Um, I've been, the, I'm an officer of the company. I'm a chief creative officer and I'm responsible for all of the company's product development efforts. I've also taken time out to design a few games here and there. So, uh, when the company needs that and there's been a, there's been a couple of emergency situations where I've had to jump in and design a game. <laughs> so, uh, I, but my job is to manage the development teams and, um, basically lead the, you know, all of the creative efforts here at Stern Pinball. And we're, we're doing great. Uh, you know, we've grown substantially. I have about uh, 50 guys in my studio, four development teams. And, um, you know, we're setting the world on fire with our pinball machines. And um, this coming year, um, I'm going to put the games online. We're taking, um, bringing, finally bringing pinball into the, um, you know, into the current century. And, and I'm, that's the project I'm most excited about is the, the connectivity project that, that, that I'm very focused on every day now. Um, so that's what I'm doing. That's uh, how it all happened. <laughs> so I've designed in the course of my, of my career, I've probably done about 18, 17 or 18 different pinball titles. Um, so you can add that to my, add that to the resume. Um, you know, two of the more modern games of mine that are our favorites are the Batman 66 and uh, the Beatles, especially myself being a major, major Beatles fan. I really enjoyed that game. Um, you know, was there any stories about those? Yeah. So, the, you know, the Beatles game, um, 
Yeah, so I, I led that effort um, in terms of design. The, 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 uh, and I did the Batman 66, by the way. Um, also, the, the, but, the, but the Beatles effort was intended to make a game that felt uh, sort of like, a, you know, it was, it, we wanted it to be a modern game. You know, it's got an LCD mm-hmm. screen and it, and it, you know, we have some of that old footage, the old Ed Sullivan footage, you know, ladies and gentlemen, meet the Beatles, all that stuff. But um, another, uh, the guy that that's had a lot of impact in our business, Joe Kemenko, brought that license into the company and said, you know, we can do this. Uh, it's a very expensive license. And, you know, the game's got nine Beatles songs in it. And we decided that we would take uh, like a, a famous Stern game, single level play field. Uh, in the case of the Beatles, uh, it was the old Stern Sea Witch and update it. So what I did is I talked to a lot of the guys around here that play, were really familiar with Sea Witch. And I said, so what'd you like? What didn't you like? And and so I updated the play field. So it shoots a lot nicer than the old Sea Witch. We added a bunch of features to it. You know, we added this spinning record and we added a, a couple of magnets and things that didn't have in the original game. Um, and, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's a really fun, great game. Um, very different. Uh, we made only 1,964 <laughs> of them uh, as a reference to the time. And, and, and for that reason, they're, they, you know, they're, they're, they're very valuable and, and people uh, cherish them. And, um, and so, um, yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's a real, it's sort of a, it's, it's a, it's very different from the rest of the games that we build. You know, we build, uh, really um you know big pinball experiences in in all the other games um really very full very um comprehensive um and this is a simpler beatles is a simpler game reflecting a simpler time in designed to to help you enjoy the music of the times and get you in that vibe and and it's a fun game to shoot it's it's actually very very it's it's challenging in its own right but it's not you know, it doesn't have like all these layers and and layers and layers and layers like like the stuff we currently yeah, make. Yeah, I agree. Like as a casual player, like you said, I definitely felt that I could approach it more easily. And of course, being a big Beatles fan, you know that definitely helped. But like you said, it, it um, yeah, it was definitely like I said like a simpler time. Um, now, I, understanding that, of course, it'd be very expensive, but has there ever been any consideration of doing essentially a sequel with, say, doing the Beatles during their psychedelic periods? Well, funny you should say that. Um, we we have talked a little bit about, I mean, like, the obvious, uh, the obvious thing is to do a Yellow Submarine uh, version. And so there's been discussed, but, but, uh, I don't know if that's ever really going to happen. Um, but it was discussed that that, that imagery is kind of cool, you know? And so, uh, there's, yeah, there's been a lot of talk about it, but I think, I think we would, we would have to, you know, um, we'd have to figure out a way to make it, uh, you know, make it worthwhile. Um, so as far as the Batman 66, you know, what was interesting or unique about that one? Right. So um, the most significant thing about Batman 66 was the fact that, you know, we um, we like uh, the the my partner on that um, Lyman Sheets is one of the you know, one of the storied uh, amazing uh, game developers in pinball. And he uh, 
we both grew up watching the series when we were kids and we had uh, some participation from Adam West before he passed. And, and, and so it was, it was a, it was a, I mean, and, and, and for him, uh, for, for, uh, for Lyman, it, it really became a labor of love. We had access to all the old clips from, you know, from the show when we were growing up. And so, he really crafted, he, he just crafted such an amazing presentation. Um, and we, we had both worked on the dark night, uh, from, from 08, you know, the, the, the stern pinball, uh, based on the, on the Christian Bale movie and, uh, trilogy of movies. And so we, um, we, you know, it was kind of an interesting project because it was the 30th anniversary of the company and we started the project with saying, hey, what do, why don't we take the old, you know, when we take the Dark Knight and and um, like sort of it'll be a second bite at the apple. We'll we'll get to change things we didn't like, which is something you very rarely get to do. Um, you know, you, you very seldom get to revisit your own work and say, oh, you know what? I, I didn't I didn't like the way this turned out. But I but if I think if I had another crack at it, I would do it like this. And and really, when we sat down to, to design Batman, the thing I was I was really focused on that we talked about that uh, it's got a rotating mini play field that does so many things. It presents lots of faces to, to the player. It has a tiny little um lcd screen that is is housed in something that looks like an old 60s mm-hmm. uh tv set you know with yep. rabbit ears and um and so you know it's that display is a target in and of itself and so it was um it was the idea that we could take this we could we could take this play field and sort of present different uh devices to the player in the course of a game and, and sort of change the, you know, change where the ball went, change the kinds of t- things we were doing with the targets, um, uh, hold balls for a multi-ball, do, do very super interactive. It's probably, it's probably the most interactive, uh, you know, eight inches of pinball, of a pinball <laughs> play field in the history of pinball. That thing does more stuff. It's like crazy. <laughs> um, now, I know you kind of talked about, you know, making uh, the, some of the games coming up, you know, uh, connect, you know, interconnected as far, or, you know, connectivity with the Internet. Um, and I realize you may not be able to say anything on this, but I'm going to ask anyhow. Are there any games or game ideas that maybe are in the early stages that you can mention? Or is this all kind of hush hush right now? Yeah, pretty much. We don't talk about stuff we're I, developing. Yeah, I assumed as know? much, but I got to ask. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, um, we've got, look, I've built, I'm very proud of my studio. I've built, when I walked in the door, there were nine people here in development, nine, ten people in development, something like that. And and today at 50, I have, I have an incredibly talented, super hardworking, amazing studio. You know, I, I mean, I, I uh, you know, I refer to it to my close friends, they're saying, you know, Hey, it's the boom studio. You know, we just, everything's a boom. We've been doing, we've had such an amazing, um, success rate and, and it's really reflect it's, it's reflected in the growth of our company. Um, this, this company rose from the ashes of 08 and has prospered beyond, um, you know, I think that, you know, anything that we imagined, um, I think that, you know, we have, on any given day, anywhere between 80 and 90% of the world market in pinball. 
and we have led the renaissance that that's happening today uh, all over the world in pinball. Um, you know, the, 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 you know, the, I mean, there are, it's, it, it is, that's the synergy of that renaissance um, began right here. And, and we, um, you know, we're very proud of that. And we think that, uh, um, you know, we, the, you know, people are going to be very excited with the sort of the next, you know, the next 10 years of the company, um, uh, have amazing things in store for them. Um, and, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm very proud of the studio. I'm very proud of, um, the talent and, and, the and how hard they work. And, and, uh, you know, part of my, part of my job is, is to, um, shield them and, and, and foster their work and, and defend and, and, and kind of, uh, um, convince people that we have to do the things that we have to do. And, 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 uh, the companies are very supportive, very, very supportive. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I say just even what I've seen, just being a casual player, I would say Stern probably has no, you know, no reason to worry. Um, like I said, I, I enjoy many of the, you know, modern ones, even as a casual player. Um, and I know a few competitive players who, um, you know, very much enjoy the games on a much deeper level than I do. Um, and I think that's saying a lot that they're always, you know, like, oh, you know, I like this game. I like this. Um, and they're always going on about all the different levels of complexity that they do. Meanwhile, I sit there and I just hit the flippers and I try to get a score. It's, you know, a third of theirs <laughs> if I'm lucky. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's like anything else, right? It's, um, um, and it's most basic. Uh, pinball is a ball and bat game. It, 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 it's like, it's, it's like tennis or baseball. Um, anything that requires, it requires your mind's eye to reconcile the velocity of the ball inside of, you know, in, in the frame of reference of the play field, right? It's like, just like the first time, if you've ever stepped on a tennis court, first time ball seems like it's going 600 miles an hour. And, and after you do it for a while, you, you think, oh yeah, okay. You, you begin to wrap your head around you know, the velocity of the ball, the placement, et cetera. And same thing with baseball and same thing with any, any, any game where you have those components. So pinball is no different. It's, it's all about understanding sort of like, you know, what, how to control the ball. And, and I mean, it's, that's, by the way, it's easier said than done. I mean, it's because even <clears throat> I struggle on my own games. So, I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's easier said than done, but you do get better and, and it, and, and it, the game rewards practice. There's no question. Uh, it is a game of skill and it rewards practice. <laughs> well, George, I'd like to thank you for taking the time here. You have told us many great and amazing stories about your days in the arcade, your days in the pinball and your current job now at Stern. Um, I'd like to say once again, Thank you very much. I know our listeners will appreciate hearing all your stories. Um, is there anything you'd like to say uh, as you sign out? No, just uh, thanks uh, very much for having me on. And um, <clears throat> I hope I didn't bore you with too much uh, too much minutia on, <laughs> on this not. stuff. No, but, it was uh, awesome. Uh, I, I encourage, I'll tell you what I want to say. I encourage everyone to find um, a current day Stern Pinball and give it a whirl. Um, it, it, it will, uh, that de they'll definitely surprise you. Uh, well, thank you, George. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. 
Cool. See you guys. Bye. Thank you for listening to the 80s Arcade Podcast. We want to hear from you. You can reach us on Twitter at 80s Arcade Pod, on Facebook at 80s Arcade Podcast, and on the web at 80sArcadePodcast.com.